0: I'm Felix Bennell, and this is Episode 6 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, An Informal Portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in New York in 1951. On this episode, we're reading Part 7 of Chapter 1, which is the final part. That's called Doc Maynard and the Indians, 1852 to 1873. And we'll also begin Chapter 2, which is Mercer's Maidens. For Maynard, when he returned from Suquamish... That was the greatest misfortune of all. It cut him off from the town he loved since he was the known friend and associate of Redskins. It was useless for him to point out that it was his duty to mingle with Indians. Useless to say that his friendship with some of them had lessened the danger to the community. His friends understood. Those who knew him less well, he could not reach. He was an Indian lover. He was a Democrat, too, in the shifting climate of opinion. Nationally, the Whigs had given way to the new Republican Party, And the other leaders of Seattle, Yesler, the Denny's, Dr. Smith, were of Republican kidney. Maynard, the friend of the Indian, was the foe of the abolitionist. He was a states' rights man, a moderate, and in time a defender of secession. There were those later who called him Copperhead. So, in the dark days following the Indian War, when business was at a standstill and land was worth almost nothing, when half the families left town, Maynard found himself estranged from much of the remaining community. Catherine stood firmly by him, so did Chief Sealth and a few others, but this man who had been a mover and a shaker, this booster who had been a one man chamber of commerce, found himself put aside. And not only did Maynard receive scant gratitude for his work with the Indians, but he failed to get back most of the money he had supplied. His claims on the government were disapproved. He had not gone through channels. As the Civil War approached and passions rose, Maynard, the friendliest of men, found Seattle unbearable he longed to escape to the solitude of a farm. In 1857, he traded 260 acres of his land, the area directly south of Yesler Way, the section which became the headquarters for the northern gold rushes, to C.C. C. Terry, in return for a 319-acre farm on Alky Point. There, in a fine clabbered house with a wonderful view of the sound, he and Catherine almost starved. Maynard was no farmer. He could not follow the quiet discipline of farm life, and he would always knock off work to help a friend. One day, young Christopher Columbus Simmons, Big Mike's boy, who had drawn his historic given name because he was born on the banks of the Columbia during the overland trek, pulled his canoe up on the beach below Maynard's house. With him was a very young girl. They wanted to get married, Chris said, but their parents thought the girl too young. Maynard asked, well, how old is she? Thirteen, the boy admitted, but they loved each other very much. Maynard, who had encountered Big Mike's objections when he courted Chris's aunt, thought that anyone in love ought to get married. He hit on a stratagem, childish but effective. He took two pieces of paper, wrote 18 on each of them, and had the girl put them in her shoes. Then he took them to the residence of the Reverend Daniel Bagley. The minister said the girl looked pretty young. Maynard allowed that she did, but added, Nevertheless, I'm positive that she's over 18, absolutely positive. So, with Maynard as a witness, the ceremony was read at 6 in the morning. That afternoon, the parents arrived. They upbraided poor Bagley for marrying a girl so young, he took them to Maynard and demanded an explanation. Maynard explained. They were not amused. Sixty-three years later, the patriarch, Christopher Columbus Simmons, recalled that after the ceremony, Maynard had taken him aside and said, Look here, young fellow, this is a pretty serious affair. And Chris had replied, All right, I'm willing to take my medicine. And Simmons added, I'm still taking it and enjoying it. We have at present in our family, sixty, including ourselves, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Maynard had many other visitors at Alki. The house was on the main canoe route along the Sound. The Indians made their friend's house a camping spot, coming and going. They nearly ate him out of house and farm. Official duties took Maynard from the plow quite often. Though the Republicans were gaining power, the Democrats still controlled the territorial administration. Maynard was again appointed Justice of the Peace for the Seattle Precinct and Court Commissioner for the county. After he and Catherine had been gone for a week on court business, they returned to find their house burned to the ground. It was almost a blessing. The Maynards moved back to Seattle and opened a hospital. As usual, Maynard couldn't concentrate. The hospital took up only two rooms in the small, two-story frame building he lived in. Catherine, who had no formal training at all, was put in charge of the lying in ward. Another room was set aside as drugstore and notions counter. Tradition says that Maynard's hospital did not thrive because the doctor insisted on treating Indians as well as whites. One of his patients was Sielf. The aged chief spent much of his time with his people on the reservation across the Sound, but when he came to Seattle, he called on Maynard for treatment. One school of local historians believes that the doctor joined his friend in taking some high-proof medicine. Others insist that Sielth would never touch alcohol. The chief died suddenly of a heart attack on June 7, 1866. We will never know for sure the stature of Chief Sielth. He may have been, as the pioneer said, a great man and a great statesman, he may have been, as some Indians of the generation that followed his have argued, a shrewd and conniving sub-chief who turned the power of the white men to his own advantage, a Quisling who guessed right about the outcome of a struggle for power. The truth probably lies somewhere between these two estimates, but either way he was a good friend of Doc Maynard's, and that friendship was important for the future of Seattle. Two years after opening his hospital, Maynard hung out his shingle as a lawyer, He had been admitted to the bar by an act of the legislature in 1856, but had never practiced. As a physician, Maynard had at least the recommendation of his own good health. As a lawyer, his personal affairs should have been as helpful as a quarantine sign. They were in a mess. Most of Maynard's legal troubles grew out of his switch of wives and his casual conviction that since Lydia had never lived on the land he had registered in her name, he could transfer it to Catherine. When Lydia learned, probably from some busy patriot who did not care for Copperhead Maynard, that she had not only been divorced, but had been divested of a considerable portion of downtown Seattle, she started west. One day, Maynard heard she was to arrive on the afternoon steamer from Olympia. He stopped at his favorite barber shop and said, Fix me up in your best style. What's up, doctor? What are you going to do? I'm going to give the people here a sight they have never had before and may never have again. I'm going to show them a man walking up the street with a wife on each arm. When the steamer arrived, Maynard and the second Mrs. Maynard met the first Mrs. Maynard, and together they went to the Maynard house, where the three lived in apparent harmony until Lydia had completed arrangements for her legal business. The business turned out badly for all concerned. The litigation wore on and on. Lydia's claim for the land was not allowed because she had never lived on it. Maynard had a brief moment of happiness, believing that Catherine would surely be awarded the disputed title, but the court ruled that Catherine had not settled on the land in time to claim it. Her half of the Maynard property would have to be returned to the government. That raised new problems and started more suits. Did the dividing line between the property of husband and wife run north and south or east and west, and which side belonged to which partner? Hundreds were vitally interested in the decision because Maynard had disposed of most of his land. Whichever way the ruling went, a considerable portion of Seattle's property owners were going to find themselves without a valid title to their land. But to Maynard it no longer made much difference. The few lots he still held title to were so scattered that no matter how the line was drawn, he would lose a number of them. He resigned himself to their loss. In the final decision, which he did not live to learn, the court ruled the property line ran at right angles from the shore and that Maynard had owned the northern portion. The southern part reverted to the government. The decision that mattered to Maynard was the one that deprived Catherine of her claim. Liquor became for Maynard less a stimulant than a consolation. He drank more than ever, but as he became an alcoholic, he regained much of his old popularity. He was an institution, and there was probably pity in his popularity. Old Doc Maynard is a better doctor drunk than the rest of them are sober, the people said. But still, he did not prosper as a physician. He hated to send bills. If there was a change in Maynard's attitude once he realized the inevitability of his failure, it was in his relations with public officials. Whenever he had held office, Maynard had tried to use his position to help people but it seemed to him that other officials operated on a different principle. They had shortchanged him for his services, they had deprived him of his land grant, they would not even repay the money he spent in line of duty as Indian agent. One day when Maynard went to the post office to pick up his mail before catching the steamer to Olympia, he found the door locked. The postmaster was sorting mail. Maynard shouted that his boat was leaving and he wanted his letters right now. The postmaster said he'd have to wait just like everyone else. To Maynard, it seemed he had been waiting most of his life for the government to give him what was rightfully his. He kicked down the door and snatched the letters from the startled postmaster. But he could not stay angry. When he came back from Olympia, he brought with him new hinges for the door and put them on himself. He changed very little. One of his last acts was to deed to St. John's Lodge of the Masons, the first Seattle lodge, of which he was a charter member, one of the few pieces of property to which he still held clear title. The Masons were raising funds for a new cemetery, and Maynard thought the project worthwhile. He was on the committee that selected the site of the graveyard. A few months later, in 1873, he died. His funeral was the largest Seattle had known. His body lay in state at Yesler's Pavilion, a big new frame building at Front and Cherry. The whole town came to say goodbye. One of his fellow citizens, speaking from the floor, said, "...without him, Seattle will not be the same. Without him, Seattle would not have been the same." Indeed, without him, Seattle might not be. Unquote. It was a fitting tribute, though delayed, and even in death, Maynard had to wait. His was to be the first body buried in the new cemetery, but the ground had not been dedicated. When the funeral procession left the pavilion, it moved along the narrow dirt streets, past the big unpainted clapboard houses on the hill, to the old cemetery. There the coffin was stored in the tool house. When the Masonic ground was finally consecrated, Maynard resumed his final journey. Seattle had at last caught up with one of his visions. This is the chapter called Mercer's Maidens. The troubles of Doc Maynard, an exceptional man, stemmed from his possession of a plurality of women. The troubles of other Seattle males were quite the opposite in origin. The bulk of the white population on Puget Sound was young and unmarried and masculine. Only one adult out of ten was a woman, and rare indeed was the girl over fifteen not spoken for. At least three-fourths of the men in town had to be chaste or sinful, and even the latter course raised the question of whom to be sinful with. With a population of less than 200 in 1860, the community was too small for adultery to be inconspicuous. That left the Lusty with the choice of marrying Indian girls, a solution frowned on although practiced, or of taking Indian mistresses. The Indian girls were not unwilling either way. The Salish culture had a different sexual ethic from the white, Men who wanted relationships with Indian maidens had little difficulty persuading the girls or their parents. But there were other problems. The whites had brought venereal disease and it was ravaging the tribes. Nor did the Indian habits of sanitation lend enchantment. Some tribes piled excrement around the house walls to add warmth in winter. Even the more fastidious girls reeked of smoked fish and clams and washed their hair with urine although there is little reason to think that the bearded and unwashed Anglo Saxons were much less noxious than the girls, the men believed that they smelt better. In spite of smells there was considerable intercourse between the settlers and the tribes women, but much of it was desperate and impromptu. The plight of the Puget Sound male was indeed sad. The Herald, Up Sound at Stillicum, came out with periodic editorials bemoaning the impossibility of adequate sexual activity. Where demand was so sustained and so obvious, somebody was certain to try to hustle up an adequate supply. That somebody was a Barbary Coast gentleman named John Pennell. How Pennell came to desert San Francisco for Seattle is uncertain. Probably some seamen from one of the lumber ships told him of the yearnings of Puget Sound mails. And with the supply in Pennell's line almost exceeding demand along the Barbary Coast, he may have decided to prospect the Virgin Territory to the north. In the summer of 1861, Pinnell debarked from a lumber schooner on the sandpit beside Yesler's Mill. A single glance at the pedestrians on the dusty reach of Front Street, who were as predominantly male as the crew of a ship, must have confirmed the reports he had heard in San Francisco. An examination of Seattle's economic base could only have made business prospects seem bright. Here was a town of bachelors, a town with no commercial entertainment, a town with an established payroll. Here was a town just waiting for the likes of John Pennell. Within a month of his arrival, there stood on the shore of the bay, not far south of the point where the logging road reached the mill, a pleasure palace of rough-sod boards, the pioneer of a long line of establishments which were to give this part of town a distinctive character. The lot on which this bawdy house was built was made land, a fill created on the tide flats by pouring in the sawdust from Yesler's Mill. It was not desirable land, for the flats stank when the tide was out, but Pennell could not be too particular, and the site had the advantage of being only a few minutes' walk from the mill, and in plain view of the ships entering the harbor. The Illahee, as Pennell named his house, was in the great tradition of the Old West. The oblong building of unpainted boards housed a large dance floor, which was flanked by a long bar. Along one side of the floor was a hall leading to a number of rooms. Pinnell imported three musicians, a fiddler, a drummer, and an accordion player, from San Francisco. The rest of his help was native. He traded Hudson's Bay blankets to local chiefs for a supply of Indian girls. These recruits were vigorously scoured, their long hair was combed and cut, they were doused with perfume and decked out in calico. A girl would dance with anyone without charge, but her partner was expected to buy a drink for himself and his companions after each dance. The bartender usually substituted cold tea for whiskey in the girl's glass, Though the charge was for whiskey. When a man tired of purely social intercourse, he could always buy a couple more drinks and lead his partner down the hall to one of the little rooms. There was no attempt to conceal what was going on at the water's edge. One historian has argued that it was the establishment of Pinnell's Place that led straight to Seattle's present day dominance of the Northwest, the scholar's thesis being that words swiftly spread throughout the timberland about the type of entertainment offered at the foot of the Skid Road in Seattle. The town had, in that historian's words, quote, the best mousetrap in the woods. Hopnails and calks were deepening all the paths to its door. Unquote. While this economic argument gives more importance to sex than even Freud would be likely to admit, there can be little doubt that Pennell drew his clientele from all over the sound country, and that the men who came to town primarily to enjoy the girls also spent money on more legitimate trade. Some respectable members of the little community accepted Pennell's establishment as a necessary evil. Others deplored it, but failed to convince Sheriff Wyckoff that he should close the place as a nuisance. Somehow, the name Ilahi, which meant homeland or earth in Chinook, didn't catch on. It may have been among the straight that the establishment first came to be known as the Madhouse. But the nickname stuck and was later applied to other houses whose stock and trade was of Indian origin. Those who did not call the brothel the Madhouse sometimes referred to it as the Sawdust Pile or Down on the Sawdust. The inhabitants were known as sawdust women. During a depression in San Francisco at the end of the Civil War, Pinnell rounded up a handful of out-of-work Barbary Coast girls and shipped them north. They were the first white women north of the Columbia to ply the oldest profession. Though it is doubtful that prostitutes unable to prosper in San Francisco were unduly attractive, their presence in the Illahi, according to a chronicler of the period, quote, had a powerful imaginative effect on the whole male population of the Puget Sound country and old-timers still relate fabulous legends from those happy days, unquote. The legends were the standard ones of the red-light district. There was the tale of the ladylike whore who murdered the men she learned were carrying large amounts of money. There was a legend of the girl who fell in love and demurely denied her swain the favors she still sold, albeit unwillingly, to everyone else. And, of course, there was the story of the girl who married a client and moved into one of the white clapboard houses on the hill. And we'll stop there with Episode 6 of The Housebound Historian. When we continue with Episode 7, we'll keep reading Chapter 2, Mercer's Maidens, from Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle written by Murray Morgan in 1951 and published by Viking in New York. I'm Felix Bennell.